Worth While Inside Music Cast is focused on bringing you the legendary musicians who have helped to shape the world of music. We're always keeping our ears peeled for the next generation of musicians who will help keep this spirit alive and ongoing. On today's episode, we turn our attention to the Los Angeles-based jazz, funk, and soul trio, Organ Freeman. While the band's name might make you snicker, their music will definitely put a smile on your face and a new groove in your soul. This fresh new band is starting to make a name for themselves in Southern California and the Bay Areas, so we thought we'd help spread their music and their story. Inside Music Cast is pleased to welcome organist and key bassist Trevor Steer of Organ Freeman. Hey Trevor, thanks for joining us today. Thanks you guys for having me. You know, Trevor, if you're familiar with Inside Music Cast, which I think, you know, before we started talking here, you said you are, you've listened to some of the uh, interviews. You know, we've we've interviewed, sure. you know, dozens of heavy musicians, you know, over the past nine plus years. You know, the guys who've been around since the 60s, 70s, you know, and have played on hundreds, even thousands of records, you know, the, the seasoned veterans. But, you know, we love it when we learn about, you know, the young guys who are breaking onto the scene with incredible music and musicianship. And when we heard Oregon Freeman's debut album, you know, we just knew we had to have you on the show and, and introduce you and, and your music to our audience. So uh, we just want to welcome you, and thanks for being with us today. Well, thanks. Happy yeah. to uh, provide you with some variety, given that we haven't been around at all. <laughs> so, well, you're around now. No, and, no. Uh, yeah. But again, your, your band is called Organ Freeman, and you guys are a, a trio consisting of yourself on organ and, and key bass, and you've got Eric Carlson on guitars and uh, Rob Humphreys on drums. And you know, since you guys are so brand spanking new, you know, tell us about how the three of you guys came together to form this band. Sure, yeah. Well, uh, the three of us originally met in school. So we were going to a place in Hollywood called Musicians Institute. And, um, you know, I was plugging away there, not really knowing a whole lot of other musicians to play with in that spot. And then Rob ended up being a teaching assistant in one of the classes that I was in. Yeah. And... I just assumed that he was a faculty member or something because he was just a killing player and uh, ended up needing someone to play on one of his juries at school. And that ended up being me. And so yeah. he and Eric had already been playing together. We were in different programs. They were doing a bachelor's thing. I was doing a shorter program. Mm-hmm. Uh, and from there, we just kind of gravitated towards each other. There's just a really small, I think most people who do music schools have a similar experience where you kind of gravitate towards a core group of guys and that ends up being who you're doing all your gigs with, who sure. you're like trying all your new ideas with. And uh, that's essentially what happened. And from that point, I mean, we, we started this group, I think with probably about six or maybe even less months left um, of time that I was in school at least. And then uh, from then on, it just spiraled, I guess. I don't no. know. It's It's been interesting because the amount of time that we've all had to spend on this has greatly varied because we all have, you know, all three of us got out of school and started doing freelance stuff mm-hmm. around L.A. Right. So we're separately beholden to so many different commitments that, you know, on any given moment like sure. i'll be on a tour in europe and then the other guys I'll, I'll get back eric moved to do a show in vegas for like six months yeah during the time that we were recording this album actually yeah <laughs> so you know he would come back on weekends sometimes to record little bits and pieces <laughs> yeah 
Yeah, it's been a very long, gradual process. Well, it's good that you're busy. And actually, some of those things you're talking about, we're going to touch on a little bit later, maybe in more depth. But Eddie has a really important question for you. Very, very. All right. Uh, give me a drum roll, please. <laughs> so the name Oregon Freeman. I think Fre- I know what it is. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> the name Oregon <laughs> Freeman. Uh, how did you get there, man? <laughs> that's, that's, that's entirely Eric, and it kills me. It should have been me. Um, well i think as the name would suggest to you guys uh, we don't as people take ourselves particularly seriously yeah so you know the the pun angle is definitely one of the first that we explored um took a little while to come around to that but Hey, it works. Yeah, I don't know if I have a big magical story for you. <laughs> you know, I I work in post production and I work with voice talent all the time. And there's a guy that I've worked with out of uh, California, um, and he does a spot on Morgan Freeman impersonation. Does he really? So if you ever want me to connect you with him, you guys could do some that really fun fun promos using like a Morgan Freeman esque kind of that voice. That would be cool. It'd be really cool. Yeah, where Morgan <laughs> yeah. Freeman where Morgan Freeman introduces and yeah. now here's Morgan Freeman. Yeah, yeah, some completely unauthorized advertisements. Yes, exactly. I still maintain the absolute best thing that could happen would be for actual Morgan Freeman to find out and then get really upset about it. Well, you know, <laughs> p- parody sometimes is so flattering, you know? Yeah. It's in Saturday Night Live oh, gets, yeah. gets, gets away with it. <laughs> well, you know, it'll speak- be the best publicity. Right? Yeah, exactly. Well, let's talk about you a little bit. And um, as I understand sure. it, you know, you grew up in the San Francisco area and started playing you right, know, yeah. classical music when you were only five years old. And I was thinking about that. You know, that seems like a, a pretty intense, you know, music regimen for a, a five-year-old. So, I, you know, I'm assuming you're – I'm just assuming your parents were the motivation behind this. And were they also musicians? Yeah. So I'm actually kind of the product of my parents' collective regret at quitting the piano. So they were both <laughs> piano students when they were younger, and they both both stopped and both regretted it. And so they um, it was actually my idea initially. First, I think I wanted to play violin, and they did not give in to that, which I'm somewhat thankful for. Uh, but they did let me sit, play piano, and I you know I loved it for a couple years, and I was lucky in that I was going to a school that had sort of an accelerated music program that yeah. you could try to get into you audition for. And that really meant just like two lessons a week instead of one. And you have a lot of performance opportunities that would come up monthly. Yeah. So getting in front of people a lot at an early age, uh, which is all great stuff. But, you know, I, I told my parents I wanted to do it and their reaction was, that's great. But if you do this, you, we won't let you quit. <laughs> And of course, my response to that was like, "All right, I'm I'm six. Cool. Right. <laughs> I have no concept of what's going to happen in my life. I promise. So, uh, I, I promise. I will not quit. I will not quit. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> barely, barely a self-aware individual. Yeah. But um, yeah. So you know that went about how you would expect when you're six years old and your parents are sitting down with you to practice classical music yeah. every single day for hours to do. But you got to the age, obviously, that, that you actually sort of got a little burned out on it, right? Yeah, I I, um, I ended up stopping playing piano altogether for about six or seven years once I got into high school and uh, had any say about it myself. But I didn't stop playing music entirely because I was playing saxophone for a while as well. Really? Oh, okay. What, what else did you learn how to play along the way? 
you seem to be very much a multi-instrumentalist type of uh, guy that can almost pick oh, up anything, man. right? I, I, I don't think that there's anything else that I would really say that I can do competently. <laughs> um, I, I've dabbled in all sorts of things. I had one band that was having me play uh, chromatic harmonica, like taking solos and everything, and that was just like... Holy cow. In this in this setting, talking to you now, I would never bring that up. We're so glad you didn't bring it up. <laughs> situation, yeah, you're, you're getting the real details here. Oh, that's all right, but because you, at, the, at the end of it all, you ended up at Berkeley, right? And um, I did. And uh, you you were there for a little bit. I mean, it's it was you didn't finish the whole stint there, but um, as, c- as very little as what someone can be there. <laughs> hey, as but you went like, through the door slightly longer than Chick Corea. Right. Like, that's about it. <laughs> so, so what? Uh, so, tell us is what what caused you to, to sort of walk away from uh, a school like that? What was it uh, that that spawned that? I've always wanted to give all sorts of different answers about that, about mm-hmm. like things that I thought were wrong from with Berkeley at the time or yeah. the situation. And the reality, when I'm looking back on it at this point in my life, it's more that I just wasn't really ready to be. Yeah out on my own and self-disciplined at that point in my life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, okay. I was yeah. 18 and from San Francisco yeah. experiencing my first winter, no room for me in the dorms. So I'm living <laughs> off campus and like trudging a mile through the snow every day. Yeah. And like, that's not a big deal to most people, but for me, it was just not, not doable when I was a shy kid. And so I, I kept myself and I practiced in my room and yeah. you know, it's the one thing that I'll say about a place like that is that oftentimes I think they are great in terms of what they offer. Yeah. You know, you have a big music school. They can offer you lots of stuff in classes. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you personally are a classroom learner. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I think I've I've always thrived on, like, my own motivation and individual attention, where Mm -hmm. the more questions that I can personally ask, the better off I am. Yeah. And so... I guess yeah. I just didn't feel super comfortable in that environment. I wasn't yeah. ready. You know, well, from there you moved uh, out to L.A. I think you moved in with your brother, and you worked a variety of jobs outside of music. And, you know, was this was this difficult, and, and were you missing music, or were you in, kind of enjoying the break at that point? Uh, no, I was definitely missing it, not really having a, a direction or any kind of connections out there yet. And, you know, the stuff I was doing was not thrilling either. I was mostly yeah. just working restaurant jobs. I taught some SAT prep classes, like really whatever I could figure out to just keep me afloat. Yeah. And then uh, playing a little bit on my own still. But, yeah, yeah, you know, L.A. is a, a big open place. And unless you have a foot in the door, like it can be hard to, to start spiraling out and meeting new people. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, did you? Uh, that's what I was thinking about. You know, being in LA, did you? you I, I guess, like you said, it was it's, it was difficult to meet people. But did you have any connections? Did you get your foot in any doors there or, at all? Uh, I I did. I mean, I had you know people that I knew from growing up. Um, a lot of people that I grew up playing with ended up going through USC's program. Okay. And um, so I, you know, I was hanging out for the first year, doing all of those things, and then about a year and I reconnected with a couple of my friends who were in that program who had a group, um, just like a alternative rock band at that point that I ended up joining and playing with. Uh, and that was really the first thing that I had done on keyboard that was not 
classical or just me screwing around in my room, but like actually playing with people in a non-classical context. Yeah. And, and you know, that, I was going to mention something about that. You know, you ended up you ended up joining a rock band, right? And you were playing keys in the band, but it was, you know, like you said, it was kind of an area that you were unfamiliar with as you, you know, you, you would hone your skills with classical music. So, and then, oh, but, totally. but you started taking, I guess, some classes focused on rock keyboards, right? Well, yeah. So I, I, I ended up at uh, the school that I met Eric and Rob at, Musician Institute. Uh, Institute right, right. Yeah, uh, for exactly that. that reason. But yeah, I think a lot of people who have classical upbringings can kind of relate to the experience that you you end up taking shortcuts, you know, like I had a lot of in-depth theory knowledge and then not as much knowledge of how to apply that on a, you know, I, I'd been playing saxophone and I'd done uh, jazz playing with that and some, some work with the Monterey Jazz Festival when yeah. I was in high school and things of that nature. Oh, oh, that's cool. So I wasn't, you know, I, I, I understood uh, improvising and I understood basic harmonic concepts, but then to transition back to a harmonic instrument, like something as dense as the piano, is uh, you, you really just feel lost at first, not really, yeah. not really having your bearings getting around in, in a harmonic context. Sure. So. You mentioned earlier that you ended up meeting Rob Humphreys uh, there at the Musicians Institute, who, who you know, is now the drummer in your band, Organ Freeman. And of course, uh, through Rob, you met Eric Carlson, who's the guitarist in the mm-hmm. band. And toward the end of your time in school, you know, you had formed Organ Freeman. But tell me how you formed the band and decided on your musical approach. I mean, you kind of already told us about how you formed the band, but in terms of the musical approach, you know, this this fusion of jazz, funk, and soul, was that just something you guys were just really, is that what brought you together anyway? Was that mm-hmm. sort of your chemistry? Uh, yeah, I mean, we, I mean, what brought us together was just having fun. I mean, we're just yeah. a couple guys in school looking to do whatever we can. Um, as far as the musical influences, I mean, the uh, organ trio stuff is something that I've always been mm-hmm really into from a super young age. I mean, I started listening to um, like jazz and funk and R&B stuff when I was really young, like 10 or 11 even. Um, So, you know, I think one of the biggest comparisons one could make would be Soul Live. And I randomly at, I think, fifth grade found Soul Live's first album on mp3.com back when they were pressing them on you know, completely just mirror discs with just Helvetica font type on your record, you know, that just has the track listing, just the most old school method of doing probably the first, probably the first company that would just print your CDs for you in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, if you were an unsigned artist and I heard that at 10 or 11 and it just blew my little mind. (laughs) But, uh, (laughs) It's it's interesting thinking about it because, you know, with the classical upbringing and everything, like I, I had my saxophone, which was kind of like my escapist instrument that I associated with music that I liked playing, sure. and then the piano, which was the thing that I have to do. Mm-hmm. And it never really occurred to me to put those things together at uh, a young age. Yeah. Like I never, like, I, I heard that and I loved it, but it never occurred to me like, oh, let me just combine these two things and just use the piano for good in my life. Right. And, uh, and so, but I always had that sound in my ear. Um, and I always loved, I always loved Neil's playing. And then I eventually went back and checked out Jimmy Smith and all the other sure. amazing stuff out there. But, yeah. um, at, at that point, you know, at the, at the time we started playing together, I think I was just looking for an excuse to try it out. Okay. 
And, uh, <laughs> you know, you want to, you want to start out doing some left-hand bass work and no one's ever heard you do it and you've never really done it. Like, you better have some really understanding friends. <laughs> I, I hope you're in school at the time so you can figure that out. Yeah. Well, it, there's there's an adjustment period. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I think I really was just looking for a situation in which I could try that stuff out and see what it was like. You know, around this time that you were, you know, gigging, what kind of gigs were you playing during this time when you guys were at the beginning? You at know? that point, oh man, I mean, we were still in school. I... I think about halfway through my time in school, which was about a year and a half total, mm -hmm. I pretty much stopped doing all my classwork and started <laughs> doing mostly 80s cover gigs. Right. <laughs> um, just like a lot of, of bars and things like that and uh, weddings sometimes. Just, uh, just playing. Nothing. Yeah, just like bottom of the barrel type of stuff, you know, yeah. just whatever I could do yeah. to be out and busy. And I'm glad I did because... Like, I think that's what it, I think too many people get caught up in this idea that like, oh, I'll just, I'll just study as hard as I can while I'm in school. And then yeah. they come out and then they're like, oh, where are my gigs? Yeah, exactly. Like, I, grad did, I graduated. I get, I get gigs now, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's all waiting it's there like, for you. You know. It's just all going to yeah, just show up at your doorstep. <laughs> yeah. Everyone wants you to do things for free initially, of course, yeah, especially of course, yeah. in LA or any big city. Yep. Right. Um, and it's. It, the reality is, is it's often a step you got to go through. Oh, so that's yeah. kind of what playing. we were doing at the time. But doesn't it just keep you playing and playing and playing? I mean, you're getting your chops, you know. So you're playing these exactly. gigs, whatever. But you're playing and you're getting your dexterity and you're getting your stage presence. You're you're hearing things and and you're, you're not only having fun, but you're you're really uh, working on your craft, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, you had mentioned to me that about a year ago you were on tour and you confided with uh, your front of the house mixer, um, which was Wes uh, – is it Switzer? Yeah. Yeah, about getting Rob and Eric together to cut this album. And, you know, Wes, I guess, immediately threw his hat in the ring and ended up co-producing and engineering the album. But, you know, before we move on with more chat about the album, I'm just curious to know uh, what tour were you on with Wes prior to the uh, Oregon Freeman Project? What were you up to at that point? Um, Wes and I were playing for the opening act on Megan Trainer's tour out in the UK. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. So when you returned from this tour, you know, you got Rob and, and Eric together, that is, but, you know, you only had one week, like you mentioned earlier, to arrange and, and rehearse the music, and you just had such a short time. Because, you know, Rob had to head out on another tour. But uh, That's right. Tell me where this music, you know, came from. Were they, were they tracks that you had already written with the guys earlier, or did you compose all eight tracks in a week? I mean, how, how did this all work out? No, we definitely didn't do that. Yeah, um, I was going to say. <laughs> so, yeah, all, so, you know, a couple of them materialized at the last moment, um, as in were sort of developed over the last maybe like a couple months before that record came out. But all of these songs kind of develop over the course of time, especially the earlier ones where we're doing it in more of a traditional arrangement context, you know, mm -hmm. like the ABABC solo type of thing are, um, are some of the first things that we experimented with. Cause that's kind of the convention in the genre and it's what's comfortable yeah. and, uh, and easier to write. And then now that we've been doing that for a little while, like now when we're working on stuff, we're trying to think of things in a more modern arrangement context yeah. what can we do to break out of that sure but uh yeah i mean everything like the writing process has been kind of all over the map no one person every once in a while one of us brings in a completed song um that then still goes under revisions obviously but 
you know, we've done it in all different ways. We've done it where someone's got a section and we go in and build off of that. Um, we've done it where we're all in a room together and we just generate the entire thing from scratch right there. Wow. Uh, it's just complete, completely varies. So basically you, you write as you're recording and performing or do you guys map it out in some kind of notation form or whatever? Tell us how, how you guys go from the concept. Is it uh, if, if you're together, do you guys jam, look for certain hooks, certain portions and connect them? How does that work? Yeah, I mean, I'd say, I'd say the early writing process was very sectional based. So someone would have some sort of riff or melodic idea mm-hmm. or rhythmic or harmonic idea. And then we would build off of that. And, you know, I think the best stuff has always come when we are not doing too much of the process individually, because like we really do have very different influences and particularly between uh, me and Eric, because I you know I, I gravitate towards stuff that's a little more inside and Eric has, you know, Eric's done a lot more, I, I guess, modern jazz influenced stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of what he gravitates towards. Yeah. And I think the combination of those two things is really important for us, particularly because we don't want to be doing things that everyone else has done. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. like I, at least the way that I hope it comes off and you can never really know for sure what other people are hearing in your music is that, um, you know, to be grounded in, those things that came before us, but then like have some sort of slight difference. So it's, you know, I don't want to be a Jimmy Smith clone. I don't want to be a soul right. life clone, mm-hmm. you know? And right. honestly, I don't, I don't play like Neil Evans. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anyone's going to confuse me there. So, well, hey guys, let's pause and we want to listen to some music from this album. And this uh, first track we're going to play is a track called for the greater good from our guest today, Trevor Steer of the band Organ Freeman on inside music cast.
Well, you know, just thinking back about the classical influence that you've had, you know, through most of your life, and, and now you're into this really heavy jazz, funk, you know, soul kind of thing. And uh, just, I mean, where did you actually begin being influenced by that type of music? I mean, has that sort of been something that's been sitting with you for a long time, or, or is this something yeah, you just... Yeah, like I said, I was, I was probably 10 or 11. Okay. I think even before that, um, you know, it's, it's interesting to me, I think a lot of the musicians that I know, their background is that they first started getting really into music because of their home environment. Sure. Like their parents yep. uh, put on classic rock or like the Beatles, like whatever was popular from their era. And that yep. sort of led them into everything else. Yeah. And yeah. that wasn't really the case for me because that's, that's what my parents were into. They were into classical music. So yeah. any, anything that I developed was kind of independent of my environment. Mm -hmm. And so I remember like being picked up from school, just like flipping through channels on the radio. And somehow I decided I really liked smooth jazz radio mm -hmm. when I was like eight. Mm -hmm. okay. uh, and I have, I have no idea why. And I have, <laughs> I, I couldn't explain it to you, um, but that's I okay. did. And yeah, that's totally fine. And I think that's, that's kind of what I associated saxophone with was like that type of music that let me do something different you know smooth jazz is sort of an interesting beast because when you when you hear it like on a recording or on the radio it it doesn't really you know i, I think there was a point in my life too where i thought it was really interesting to listen to but now i listen to it and i think of wallpaper you know for the most part but then when you go here oh, totally it, but to be fair but when you go hear it live when you hear those guys do it live it's pretty amazing i mean i just yeah, and it, Go ahead. To be fair, there's some guys like Stanley Jordan, you uh -huh. know, yep. like Stanley Jordan will put out smooth jazz tracks, but it's Stanley Jordan yep. and he's destroying them, you know? Yeah, right. Like it's, it's not all created equally. Yeah, that's true. And it's not inherently worse just because of a genre title, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But, uh, you know, it was also a stepping stone, like it led into other stuff. But, uh, but yeah, like those, like the main influences musically in my life, like So Live, and uh, Jamiroquai and another one of my favorite bands sure. that I discovered around that time, and uh, yep. you know, Earth, Wind, and Fire, Tower of Power, that kind of stuff. Oh yeah, um, I've just been—I I got into them a little bit earlier than than most, I would think, yeah. um, when I was about ten or eleven. And so, even though I didn't come around to playing that music until much later in life, I guess I was in my mid twenties. Um, I think one of the most important aspects that anyone can have as a musician is just knowing what something should sound like. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you can't teach that. You have to be aware of it. Oh, absolutely. And I was just curious, um, in terms of the recording of this album, was this, where did you record this? Did Wes have a studio or, or where did you do it? Yeah, we actually, re we recorded it at Wes's studio. Uh -huh. um, and so to, uh, to kind of call back to what you were saying earlier about uh -huh. the immediacy of the process. Uh -huh. So we were on this tour. Wes said he would be into it. Um, like involved himself in the project and then Rob was about to leave on this other tour. So we got home from our tour, had a week to arrange the songs and rehearse, which is like more time than we had spent consecutively arranging and rehearsing in yep. years mm -hmm. um, because of our various schedules. And then, uh, and then just threw everything in there to see what happens. And uh, Wes is an um, amazing engineer. He's actually a, he's got a, Grammy. He's got a Latin Grammy for engineering and his studio is really great, but it's also very small. And when you have a Hammond that complicates things. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> our, our 
it quickly became apparent that our chief goal was just to get drum stuff done and that it was going to be somewhat unrealistic for us to live track everything. Um, you know, which is unfortunate because the style is ideally tracked live, yeah. but you got to work with what's, what's available. Yeah. And so we got those drum tracks all together in three days or so. And then Rob took off and then, um, have various pieces over the next six months as we each had our own commitments. Due to the schedules and all the three of you having, you know, different times when you're recording on the album, how long did it take uh, before you finished uh, the project, actually? Sure. So we finished, we started in May and we finished in November. Mm-hmm. And uh, we didn't really finish because we decided we were finished so much as like Wes is still currently on a tour that began in November. So we pretty much had the choice of we either wait another three to four months or we put this thing out now. And it was kind of a mad dash at the end to like whatever we were just really not okay with. And, uh, you know, I think everyone has the, everyone who's ever recorded anything has the experience that some of those things that you're not okay with made it in there anyway. Yeah. Is what it is. Well, yeah. me, me and Rick, were, you know, we know that Rob and Eric weren't uh, able to join us today for the chat, but, but can you tell us a little bit about uh, these guys and uh, from maybe a musical perspective as to what they bring to the table to, to Oregon Freeman? Sure, yeah. Um, it's funny answering this question because I realized uh, before we started this interview that there's a lot about those guys that I still don't know because they're <laughs> both like, they're both pretty quiet dudes in their own ways. Right. And so... I also correctly assumed that their uh, prioritization of interviews is probably pretty low, <laughs> being not the biggest talkers. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm, well, you uh, get, you I'm get to do all the talking, talking today. <laughs> exactly. I like uh, I hear my own voice. It's fine. But you, but um, you know that we know a lot of musicians that have been more in the quiet side over the years, and uh, and you know it's 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 actually pretty neat to 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 hear even the quiet guys as to what they really bring because they're very pensive and they're very methodical and very procedural because, you know, it's, it's music comes from their, their heads and their hearts. And, and we appreciate you taking the time to do this with us because, uh, you know, obviously Eric and Rob, they're, they're amazing players. They're great. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, very different backgrounds. I think Rob has kind of a, a classical percussion background. He Mm -hmm. did the, um, He's from New Mexico. He went to the University of New Mexico for their classical program before he went to Missions Institute and, yeah. uh, you know, did drumline and, you know, played in alternative rock bands in high school and the whole deal. Yeah. Um, Rob's really amazing. Rob, Rob does a lot of studio stuff around L.A. Yeah. because he's uh, one of the things that's really special about Rob's playing versus other drummers. And, I, you know, we all know a bunch of great musicians, but uh, Rob is really amazing with, like, doing things that are interesting sonically and having like tricks both in terms of his technique and in terms of his, like how he sets up his equipment and like, like transitioning to percussion elements in the middle of, of playing the full kit um, that other people wouldn't necessarily think of. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also like, you know, it's, I, you guys have just listened to the record, obviously, yeah. and we've never met in person or, or seen a show or anything like that. But he's also an uh, amazing live energy guy. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think I know anyone who can equal him in terms of that. Um, so that really, I mean, that, that brings a lot to the table. Yeah, I think one, of the, one yeah. of the biggest strengths that we've got in terms of our music and our show is just uh, the energy that we bring to it. Yeah. 
you're going to be cutting some um, maybe some live videos, aren't you? Pretty soon. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know when this is coming out, but uh, we've got a session next week on the uh, 23rd of February where we're going to be doing some live, some live video stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so should be up shortly after that. But you know what? I, I don't think we uh, ended up. I don't think you ended up mentioning anything about Eric. And I won't. <laughs> <laughs> nah, I'm just joking. Um, yeah. All right, that's off limits. I guess. <laughs> that's right. No, no. It's, uh, Eric's a really interesting guy because he's got he's kind of got this duality in terms of the stuff that he has played and enjoys. Where he, I think, he really gravitated towards like James Brown style classic funk music when he was younger. And and so he has got that stuff down really amazingly. Really, um, yeah. And his rhythmic concept, like as a comper or as or taking more of a comping style soloing approach, mm-hmm. uh, is really amazing. But that he he's kind of reached a point where he is, from a listening perspective, is much more into the modern stuff now. And so he kind of almost tries to discount a little bit of that and and mm-hmm. reach a little bit further in the other direction mm-hmm. um, from the stuff that's so inside. So it's great. I, I think it really works for us just because he wants to go that direction, I want to go the other direction, and then we meet somewhere in the middle. Yeah. So any idea that one of us brings in to work on, like if it's, if it's a little bit too outside or a little bit too inside, it gets reined in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, a second ago you mentioned that uh... – you know, that, of course, Eddie and I have never seen you play perform live before, and and you know you're talking about the energy you bring to your shows. And I'm assuming, since you're based in LA, that you probably do a lot of gigs in the Southern California area. And we've got a lot of listeners out there. And I just wondered, where do you guys typically play? Is there like a is there like a place that you play more often than others, or do you just kind of float around to a lot of different uh, clubs? Um, it's been it's been changing a bunch lately. Uh, we mostly we play a lot in San Francisco and in Los Angeles. Okay. Uh, up in SF, we've been uh, going to the Boom Boom Room a lot. Oh, okay. uh, LA, we've moved all over the place. It just has always depended because the times that we're available to even play have been so irregularly yeah. uh, spaced, I guess. Right. Um, yeah, we used to do a bunch of stuff at Harvell's or the Mint, which is like... Oh, yeah, I've been to the Mint. Really, I think times. where acts like us tend to gravitate in LA. Yeah. Um, we did our album release at Hotel Cafe recently. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we were just down in Long Beach a, a few weeks ago at the Federal down there opening up for Corey Henry. Yeah, that's right. And I was actually going to touch on that. You know, you've, you've, you've played with – you've obviously opened those shows for Corey Henry. And, and, and how, how did that happen? Did you connect with Corey? Did he invite you? And I'm just curious, how, you know, how that all, all worked out. Nope. No and no. <laughs> <laughs> they just paired you I, up, I right? I think that there's – there might be a good chance that if you – if you questioned Corey Henry himself as to who we are at this point, he might have no idea. Oh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> that's not entirely true. But um, he, he will though, because you guys are incredible. He, he's an amazing player. I just I've been blown away every time oh, I've seen yeah, him play. Oh yeah, one of the best. Yeah, one of the best. And yeah. uh, you know, as I'm sure you can imagine, not not an unintimidating person to play before. Oh no, <laughs> uh, especially on the organ. Exactly. Which I think yeah. is like the, the most amazing stuff he does in my mind is mm-hmm. organ playing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was a good experience in a lot of ways. And I think, if nothing else, there was uh, a good amount of overlap in terms of the audience and what people were into. So mm-hmm. it, was, it was well received for us. We were really happy to be there. And it seemed yeah. like people who 
were there for him, enjoyed what we were doing too. Well, Eddie touched on this a second ago, and, and of course, speaking of Snarky Puppy um, and Corey Henry and all that that sort of connection, you, he mentioned a second ago that you're going to be cutting some live videos soon, and the Snarky Puppy's Family Dinner uh, 2 just came out, mm-hmm. and of course, that was sort of in a live setting, and I wondered if you were kind of taking that approach with what you're doing with the videos, or, or what were you? what's the plan for the, those videos? Uh, I think we're, we're not going to do the live audience type thing, okay. and we're also not trying to do an entire record of that right now. Sure, sure. I think for us right now, it's more addressing a need, which is that yeah. we don't have, like we're a live oriented band that doesn't have recent footage of what, what our concept is live because this whole record got put together. So last minute, like there hasn't really been a moment to catch our breath and say, okay, like what is the actual next step? What is it that's most important for us right now? Like what do people need to see or experience to understand us. Yeah. So, and, it, so it will and be, I think that's probably it. So it'll be sort of a, a performance, um, you know, type of a video in some way, right? Yeah. yeah and okay. So, it, you know, we'll, we'll be doing a couple of the tracks that are on the record yeah. and then there will be at least one, one track that is as of yet, uh, not recorded. Um, another track with the featuring all the horns, Played on our record. Oh, cool! So that'll be fun. Nice. Well, let's take some time and just talk about a couple of the tracks. I mean, there's right now there's eight of them in the, in the collection of the works, and um, you know, uh, we really love the first track. I mean, it's it's I just love that it's, you place it at the at the lead spot, and the title track is called "For the Greater Good." And I'll be honest, you know, I, I think I I put that on repeat for at least three or four times before I even moved on to the second track. <laughs> to be honest with you, I think. I, I, the first track is the is the Richard track, right? Go by Richard, not by Dick. Yes, that's correct. Oh, yeah. really? Okay. The, the other one is actually the the last track. Wow. But okay. Am, I'm pleased that you like that because I really like that track. I really do. Well, <laughs> maybe it was just a sequence that I listened to maybe, it. Maybe uh, yeah. yeah. It's just in order, but that one there it was the first one, and I just I got stuck on that thing. I couldn't let it go. And you know, you, Rob, and Eric really shine on this uh, this track, and and it's never predictable. That's one thing I like about this, and sort of the the, the fusion genre, you know, the the funk. It, it's you can make it whatever you want, and you did. The guitar work was really loose, but it was really technical at the same time, and. And of course, you lay down the the Rhodes tracks, you know, uh, really in the background, real nicely. Um, can you talk yeah. to us about this a little bit for the greater good? Sure. Yeah. Um, this is actually the only track on the record that I did not play bass mm. on. So we have an actual bass player on ah, it. Um, one okay. of our good friends is uh, Alex Balderson, who's an amazing player, um, which you will hear very clearly. I think this is a really good example of like kind of our process in the writing. Well, you, maybe like you can there, start. There have been so many. Go ahead, sorry. I was going to say maybe you can start with how many you know the tempo changes. A lot of the of the music that you're producing here and you're delivering, they're so syncopated, and you have you're using such a very unusual time signature, some in seven and six and whatever. How do you approach that too? So uh, I guess it, it ties in kind of to what I was going to say, which is that on this one, um, it's a good example for us of a song that didn't really materialize all at once. It was more of a concept where the first section of the song existed and was played for a while as just a more classic form where mm-hmm. we would do that that first section and kind of A, B, A, B it, and then do solos and then come back out of it, and that was the song. And yeah. then we'd play that a few times and realize, hey, this is kind of boring. <laughs> so, <laughs> so things developed from there, and I think that... Uh, yeah, that's that's typically our. None of our songs 
tend to end up in their final state within the first month or so. Like inevitably we'll get, uh, we'll get bored at some point. And I'm sure that that, you know, honestly with the stuff that we recorded, I'm sure that'll continue to be the case. And ideally we'll have stuff that we can do for live settings or future recordings if we go revisit them that people won't have heard. Something that Eddie and I really appreciate about the the tracks in the album is that um, the three of you sound like three of you. You know, there's, I mean, you know what I mean? It's, it's, you guys didn't really overcomplicate your tracks and you sound, even though it's a, a polished record, you know, record, a, a, you know, studio record, it sounds live and these tracks will be really, you know, uh, they're really going to sound great when, when people do hear them live because yeah. they're going to hear what they heard on the, on the album. And right. it's, you know, there's not too much layering and overproduction. Sure. Yeah, we definitely tried to keep the, uh, the overdubs to a minimum whenever possible. Um, it, it was funny that you were bringing up the, that being the first track on the record just because I was going to say for the actual first track of the record, which was Richard, um, we had a lot of debate as to whether or not as a trio record we wanted to put a track that featured like an entire horn section uh, yeah. as your first track. Like, is this going <laughs> to be like, how do you have the rest of your record, which yeah. is a trio record, stand up to your first track, which has like seven people on it? Yeah. Yeah. How do you thin it up later? And then, yeah. Mm-hmm. And in the end, we just decided we really don't care. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a good attitude because you know what? And people are going to, they're going to like what they like anyway. And they're going to, you know, it, even if they, if that's all they're going to listen to is the first track anyway, then they shouldn't pick up the album because there's so much great music that follows. So, yeah, really. Hey, uh, Trevor, let's talk. I want to talk to a little bit about technical, your, your keyboard ar- arsenal. You know, what, what does it look like? Are you into all samples, modern synths? Are you into, uh, vintage synths? I know that you probably have a, a a B3 hanging around there. What's, uh, what's, what's yeah. your arsenal? What, what do you use? So my, my, my Hammond is actually an A102. Okay. So it is the, the French cabinet version of the, of the home model. Yeah. Okay. So, um, it's got these big fancy ornate legs on the front. that are about to break off. Cool. So, <laughs> so I got that going for me. Uh, no, I mean, I've always been into the actual vintage stuff when it comes to the electroacoustic instruments like the Hammond and the, roads and everything and um you know people get really close and i i don't bring that hammond out for anything but this band yeah um you know i i play a nord like everyone else because it fits in a backpack yeah but you know <laughs> things have been getting better but they're not the same and even if you can make it sound the same there's something about the feel yeah of playing that instrument and right. like what it means in the context of what people before you have done Mm-hmm. that uh, you just can't replace. And I like, I noticed that about myself big time. Like, if I'm not happy on the instrument that I'm on, like, yeah. I just don't play very well. Yeah. No, it, it is about the personal experience on the, on, the, on the Hammond. It really is. It's got to feel. <laughs> Absolutely. It's got to feel it or else it's not going to sound it. It might sound it, but it's just, you know, it, yeah, it doesn't have that, that body, that, that connection. So I, I think the keyboard players out there really understand exactly what you're saying. You know, there's one really uh, great track. I love that it. it's very syncopated. It's really funky. Um, and it's called You Said You Quit Drinking. And, um, yeah. and that's one that we hear the, the, some horn, horn patches. Um, I don't know if, the, if you used any synth horns at all or were they all acoustic, but maybe you can talk nope. us uh, all a little bit. All acoustic? That's wonderful. Yeah. You know, and, uh, and so, so when you play bass synth, you know, and on the organ, you know, uh, do you play them both together? I mean, you do such a great job with, you know, you, you actually play the bass 
you know, the keys like a bass player. It's so fluid. I mean, it's do you do you pick up the bass at all? I mean, you think bass, you hear it, don't you? Yeah, I mean, I hear it. I I am completely inept on any stringed instrument. I cannot play bass. I cannot play guitar. <laughs> I, you know, there's something in me that I, I feel like there's this this window for any new instrument you pick up. It's yeah. about three weeks to a month to get over whatever that <laughs> challenge is. Yeah. Yeah. And I just can't string together enough days that I care about it to make <laughs> yeah. it Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I... I mean, for any keyboard player out there who has never done it, playing bass is super fun. It's it's the most fun that I ever have playing keyboards. <laughs> yeah. And so, like, yeah, you know, I find myself more and more, um, like, transcribing actual bass players. Like, you know, obviously looking up stuff in organ trio settings to work off of. And, uh, yeah, I don't know, really just doing my own thing with it. Yeah, I, yeah. I was at a live show with a friend a while ago and thinking about like, you know, I was watching the 11s do some crazy 16th note line underneath a guitar solo. Mm -hmm. And I had turned to my friend. I was like, why is it okay for him to do that? Like if you were a (laughs) bass player and you did that, guitar player is going to slap you in the face. (laughs) (laughs) You can't do it. But the thing about key bass is it really affords you some freedom that you don't get as a bass player. Um, I think because of the frequency range that you're working with. So you get a little more freedom. Yeah. Well, there's some other neat tracks and, you know, we really encourage everybody to listen to this album. There's we could go on and discuss every single one. There's tracks, you know, please take me seriously. Uh, only if you only if you mean it, uh, loaded with a lot of great bass lines and, um, guitar solos. And it's, it's just very crafted very, very nicely. So, um, you know, it's just, I, I, I encourage everybody to, when it's available, you know, to, to get out there and, and pick this thing up. Yeah. There's, there's one more track real quick I want to talk about before we wrap it up. And it's, uh, there's two tracks actually. The one, one I love is, uh, hit the ground run and come out swinging. I think that's my favorite track on the mm-hmm. album. I, I just absolutely love the energy in that one. But the other, the, the other one is Verve. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of a raw track. It's, it kind of feels a little different than some of the others. And one of the cool things about that track, and I didn't notice it until today when I was listening to it, right at the end of the track, um, I was really intrigued by the way you guys ramped up the tempo and, and the pitch you know, towards the end of the song. Yeah, yeah. And it almost sounded like you were very speeding it. You know, it almost sounded like, like like a very speeding trick, you know, like in Pro Tools or something. But <laughs> but uh, but but it wasn't. I know you guys were playing it, but it sounded so cool. It really caught my ear, and I was wondering how you, how you did that. I mean, it was just from a performance standpoint, it was really cool. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks. Uh, we do that entirely by feel. Actually, there's yeah, nothing yeah. about it, <laughs> cool. and there's no there was no um, uh, click settings in the track or anything for us to do that. So when we play that live, um, we just all have a sense of yeah. of where it's going, and we just jump to it. People. So I so I can't open up a manual and figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> no, I bet no. you I bet your uh, audiences you're love it. Have to, you're going to have to find two other guys who <laughs> tolerate them for four to five years. <laughs> I've been trying to accelerate Eddie for the last yeah, 10 years. Yeah, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Trevor and Eddie, let's take a break if you don't mind, and uh, let's play one more track. And uh, let's, let's play the track we're talking about here. This is Verve from our guest today, Trevor Steer of Organ Freeman on Inside Music Cast.
Eddie brought up a good point here a second ago, and it's you know the album is out, and but uh, where can people find it? Tell us where people can go and buy this album yeah, or hear yeah, it or, really. or stream it. Uh, it's it's on iTunes, it's on Amazon, it's on uh, Spotify. If you want to stream it, um, I'll be putting up a link very shortly next couple of days. So probably by the time this is up where people can order physical copies. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was just curious. The physical copies are important because I know our audience, they, they love the, they love the physical copy and their audio files. So no doubt. And, uh, any chance of a, a vinyl, uh, product at any time soon or not going to do that? I, you know, I would love to, and I really wanted to, uh-huh. it's, uh, as I'm sure, you know, it's pricey, it's a big commitment to get them <laughs> printed. Um, yeah. You know, maybe what I'm thinking is some sort of method of some sort of counter that I can put up where uh, if people really want the because I've had a bunch of people ask me about it already. Sure. So maybe if we can get enough interest generated, then we'll do a limited yeah. pressing of it. Very cool. Well, Trevor, this has been a great chat. We've learned a lot about you and yes. uh, Rob and, and Eric and, uh, and of course, the band organ Freeman. And, uh, you know, we, we wish you the best. And, and I hope this helps get the word out about you guys. I know our audience is really going to dig I your know, music. I right? just That's why you're on the show because I just know pe- people are going to dig it. So yep. thanks for joining us today. Hey, thank you guys so much for having me. All right. Take care. It. Take care now. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Special thanks to Trevor Steer of Oregon Freeman for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. We'd also like to thank our correspondents, Kim Riley, Brian Pearson, Scott Gross, Mikhail Ingstrom, Loretta Sassaman, Scott Sheriff, Don Brightup, and Mats Unila for their continued support and content development for Inside Music Cast. Inside Music Cast is powered by Cabello Associates and Earshot Audio Post. For information about becoming a sponsor and sharing your message with thousands of music fans around the world, please visit InsideMusicCast.com for contact information. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast. Inside Music Cast.